This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And so I want to give a special thank you to Eric Ray and Stephen Lee, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon, and to Benjamin Wallen, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via PayPal. Benjamin writes, My card needed to be updated like a year ago on Patreon, and I missed out on weeks of episodes. This podcast largely determines the books and movies I search out. It functions like a homily each week during my singular atheistic mass. Sorry for missing my tithes, and I am seeking your absolution. I have updated my Patreon account. So big thanks again to Eric Ray, Stephen Lee, and Benjamin Wallen for their support. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 409 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Veronica Roth. She's the author of The Car of the Mark duology and the short story collection The End and Other Beginnings, and her best-selling Divergent novels were adapted into a series of popular films starring Shailene Woodley and Theo James. And we'll be speaking with her today about her first adult fantasy novel, Chosen Ones, which was edited by my former co-host, John Joseph Adams. And now here's our interview with Veronica Roth. All right, so we're here with Veronica Roth. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so your new novel is called Chosen Ones. So how'd this book come about? Well, um, I kind of grew up on Chosen One stories, as I think anyone who read science fiction and fantasy growing up, or likes science fiction and fantasy in general, um, is Who's exposed to... ever read to... a single example of fantasy and science fiction? <laughs> yes, exactly. So um, I just started to become curious about them, I think because I had written... The Divergent books, which are very much a chosen one story, you know, sort of played straight. Um, and I got a lot of questions from readers about, you know, what would have happened to those characters if they hadn't ended up in the ending that they did end up in, which isn't something that I can really answer because the way I write it is really the way it happens for me. So I don't have like alternate ideas, but it did make me curious about what the psychological repercussions of saving the world would be. Um, because even when we get a continuation of a chosen one story, you know, after the main battle is finished, we don't usually dwell on their like emotional reaction to what they've just endured. So chosen ones came about because I had questions basically. Yeah. And so, I I mean, I'm sure everyone listening to this knows what a chosen one story is, but just in case there's anyone who doesn't, we're talking about stories where the main character or characters get a prophecy or something that they're fated to defeat the great evil and save the world. And yeah. you were saying that you were reading, you had read a lot of stories like that growing up. Are there, were there any sort of particular ones that stand out in your minds that you um, were kind of thinking of yeah. when you sat down to write this? Well, I mean, the most obvious example for me, given my age, is Harry Potter, because I was 11 when Harry Potter came out. <laughs> so I kind of grew up with it. And that that's kind of the first place I saw them. anyone use the term chosen one. But I also, um, when I was young, read the Animorphs books, which are sort of a chosen group. And then Dune by Frank Herbert is like one of the foundational chosen one stories of science fiction, I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. Do, do, is there a particular moment you remember where you thought, I'm going to write my own take on the chosen one trope? 
No, I think I kind of happened upon it by accident. I mean, I, um, I was in a kind of peculiar curriculum growing up and we talked a lot about the hero journey in that. Um, and so I think for me, it was just like the only way that stories happened. Um, and I always loved this kind of like lonely but special character type. So I think it happened naturally just because of what I was exposed to and, and what I liked. Right. You're talking about the Joseph Campbell monomyth kind of idea? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, talked about that a lot in uh, elementary school, like a modified version of it. Not sure why. Um, yeah. Modified in what way? Well, just like uh, kind of tailored to a younger crowd because there's, you know, there's some of the Joseph Campbell terms are <laughs> older than a, than an eight-year-old can can figure out. So, yeah. yeah. So did you, did you know that you wanted to do a chosen group or did you ever think about chosen one versus chosen five or whatever? Um, I did in fact start with focusing in just on my main character, Sloan, but I, I wanted there to be a playfulness to the story. And one way to foster that is with a group of people who have known each other for a long time and can joke around and have inside jokes and history together. And I think um, in order to make the story feel richer and and more fun, it was an, a a better idea to focus on a group. Well, yeah. So speaking of Swan, why don't you tell us about kind of what was it like putting that character together? Well, um, Sloan is kind of an anti-hero, which you know we see a lot of um, a lot of male anti-heroes, but not a whole lot of women. Um, obviously, that's changing and improving all the time. But um, for me. I wanted her to be prickly because she has been through some really traumatic things. And people who have endured trauma can be very lovely and likable people, but they can also be people who are um, secretive or haunted or difficult. And um, there is always something powerful about writing about a difficult woman, because I often feel just as a woman in America... um, even one who enjoys a lot of privilege, I feel like I have a lot of the pressure to be always humble, always grateful, and always likable. And writing about a character who is not any of those things um, is really cathartic. So that's kind of what Sloane is. It's just like a, a little bit of a wish fulfillment um, and a catharsis. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you just wrote the character prickly, and you're just like, readers are either going to accept her as she is or or leave, or did you make any effort to... like? Um, make her more, give her a sort of more palatable prickliness? I didn't think about it that much because to me, when I'm reading, if a character is interesting and if I can understand or sympathize with them, then that's really all I need. I don't need their personality to conform to any particular shape. And so, you know, obviously some people don't read that way and that's fine. Um, But to me, that's what's important is to make sure that she's interesting and um, that you understand her. Yeah. Well, so tell us about the other character, the other four. Um, I guess, I don't know how much, if we want to go into too much detail about all of them, but so, sure. um, I'll, I'll just say, so there, there's four, Esther, Albert, Inez, and Matthew. And, uh, I don't know, do you want to just say uh, anything about them kind of as a group? As a- Yeah. So the way I've kind of figured them out is, uh, by how each of them relates to fame. So Sloane is obviously, she's resentful, um, and she doesn't want to be well known. She wants to be left alone. So that's her her relationship to fame, but her boyfriend slash fiance, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that, um, <laughs> is Matt. And he has taken it on as a responsibility. Like he has to do something good with 
um, how well known he is and it's a platform for him. Um, for Esther, she is a social media influencer. And so she has taken it and run with it. She's decided to embrace it. Um, and then Al, Albie is, uh, kind of troubled by it. Um, and it's made in as uh, paranoid. So, um, that's kind of like, while that's just a narrow facet of each character, it also kind of defines them for the first part of the story. And then obviously they grow from there. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting because off, you know, we have, as we've said, so many chosen one type stories, but you don't often think about what happens afterward. And do they have careers on social media or on the lecture circuit or doing commercials in Europe and stuff like that? <laughs> yeah. And like, what are they even trained for? Like, they haven't gone to regular school. They've trained for this very particular thing that they did. So, and it's not a money-making thing, saving the world, you know, um, or working for the government. So, um, the question of like, how would they even survive after that point was uh, a central concern for me. Well, right. Maybe we should explain that they are working for the government. They sort of get recruited as kids by a yes. secret government agency. And I thought that was really well done. I guess another aspect of the book is that it's, um, there are all these sort of newspaper articles and top secret documents and, um, congressional testimony and things that are kind of incorporated into the text of the story, uh, that mm -hmm. I thought were all really well done. Um, well, thanks. Do you, did you, um, model those on any like real documents or anything that you looked at or? Yes. So, um, one of the trickiest, I did a lot of research for the book in general, just for world building and like building an alternate history reasons. But the bulk of the research that I did was I just read a lot of Project MK Ultra documents, um, which MK Ultra is the government, like the declassified government documents around um, this project to experiment with LSD. Um, sometimes w while people knew it was happening and sometimes while they didn't. Um, and a lot of the documents are just financial records because they kind of found a lot of them. They were misfiled in like the finances building somewhere. Um, and that's how we even have them. Um, but I also read uh, Project Blue Book documents, which are UFOs, I think, from earlier than MKUltra. So just to figure out the voice and like what kinds of things do the documents deal with and how do they position these like letters to each other and these articles. Um, so that was, a, yeah, a big research undertaking for me. So were those sorts of government secrets, was that an interest of yours before this book or was that all new to you when you started doing this research? I think I was sort of lightly interested, but not, I didn't know enough to really be that curious. I guess I, um, yeah, I think I discovered how interested I was because of the, ne like the necessity of reading them. Um, which sometimes it happens to me the other way. I get interested in something and then I find a way to incorporate it, incorporate it into a book. But with this, it was the other way around. I actually have a, an example I wanted to read because I, I thought it's so well done. But so this is the government and they're talking about there's a prophet that has predicted that the world's going to end. And they're mm -hmm. talking about, you know, this is sort of a, a some bureaucrat is filing a report about this. And it says, it is the opinion of the Council of Cordes that the fulfillment of 50 of these prophecies was both unambiguous and specific, i.e., that they are not predictions of the fortune teller variety, which are so vague as to be widely applicable. We define specificity as details that apply to no more than 30% of the population. At least five of these details needed to be stated in the initial prophecy and met. And I just <laughs> love that because it's this weird juxtaposition of the bureaucratic language with the crazy supernatural um, subject matter. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm glad you liked it. I I uh had a lot of fun with that one in particular. So it's funny that you would read that one. <laughs> um 
But yeah, in copy editing, it was a little bit of an adventure because, you know, they would want to rephrase things to make them more, um, you know, a little tighter and more efficient. But like, that's not how government documents sound. They're all very like too many words to say something very simple. Um, so that was a fun editing battle. Yeah. Well, and it's just the formatting of the documents too. They're in sort of, um, you know, aerial font or something. And, um, mm-hmm. there's like little, I don't know, ink smudge kind of things and seals and, uh, words are redacted with black bars and things. Uh, seems like somebody had fun, fun putting those things together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you gotta have fun with it. Otherwise you're gonna lose your mind writing a book. So. <laughs> so, um, I also really like, so yeah, so the, these, um, these five characters, um, get recruited by this government agency. And they, this is all backstory, by the way, that we find out. You know, this all happened before the, the, the story really starts and, or before the novel really starts. But so that they, they were sent, we find out to retrieve these magical items that they can use to do magic. Um, I'm probably going to mispronounce mm-hmm. all these, but there's, we've got the needle of Koshe, Fry Kugeln, the golden bow, the ring of Jaijis, and the Jowler horn. Um, yes. I'm you did familiar- pretty well, I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm familiar with the ring of Jaijis. I know that's from Plato's, um, Republic. And the Golden Bow, I know it's um, Fraser, right? I mean, that's how I've heard of it. But yeah. the, the other ones were new to me. Um, how did you come across all those those magical items? I just did. I did a lot of research on um, just like mythical objects. I wanted to find uh, ones I hadn't heard of so much, um, just to kind of like I was theorizing that if we had these actual magical objects in the world, maybe you know some of them would be ones that we had heard legends of, and some of them would not. Um, the Fry Kugeln, I think that's how you say it, but I don't know. Um, are these like bullets, um, that, uh, I forget what exactly it is about them, um, that makes them magic. Hold on, let me, let, let me refresh my memory. It's been a while since I saw this. Um, can they not miss? Am I mixing that up with something else? No, I, I think you're right. They, they can't miss or they like kill their target instantly or some, some special power. Anyway, it's not important. <laughs> um, so like that's, they're German. Um, then Cushy's needle is this Russian folktale or Eastern European folktale really, um, about a man who takes a soul and he puts it in a needle and then he puts the needle in an egg and he puts the egg in a duck. And then, you know, like that's how he protects this shard of his soul and then he cannot die. So it's a little like Voldemort, um, that kind of legend and yeah, uh, kind of nutty objects and the idea that they might be serious and work, um, was kind of a delight to me. <laughs> so you, you just got a bunch of books about folk tales or something and went diving into those. Yeah, that was kind of the idea. I, um, my family is Eastern European. And so that was kind of where my focus was. Um, I find those folk tales to be particularly dark and weird. Um, and that was where I found a lot of stuff, but I also wanted to be careful because you don't want to take, you want to take, a folk ob- or a mythical object that doesn't have like real emotional or spiritual significance to people anymore because otherwise it's a sort of disrespectful appropriation of someone else's culture. So it, I had to find kind of that line between um, this is like a fun myth, but also it's no longer something that people like practice around. Was there a particular book or anything that was a real uh, goldmine for the sorts of things you were looking for? Um, I, I don't know. I think mostly when I found stuff, it was on the internet. So it wasn't so much books, um, as like weird websites. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, I heard you say in an interview that you spent time in Romania. Is there any connection there to the any of those folktales? Uh, no, probably not. I haven't heard many Romanian folktales actually in my time there. I have my husband has family there, so that's why I've been there. But um, we keep going back probably because I have a lot of kinship with Eastern European people. Generally, they feel like my whole family growing up. <laughs> um. So, yeah, so I also wanted to mention, so the um, the editor on this book was John Joseph Adams, who's uh, our producer on this podcast, a very old friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And you say in the acknowledgments, uh, you, you say thanks to John Joseph Adams for being unflappable, funny and wise, and for helping me to shape this story from the start, even if I didn't use that one excellent zombie joke. So, <laughs> so first of all, what was the excellent zombie joke? So there's, uh, not to spoil too much, but there's like... A, some kind of approximation of the living dead in this joke, or in this book. Um, <laughs> and I'm trying to remember what John's joke was exactly, but I don't know. It was some kind of zombie pun. Like, oh, it was about someone losing their nose. Um, and I didn't use that one, but I used some other one. So I think he will remember <laughs> what it was exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, he had a lot of a lot of fun. I mean, he was really responsible for a lot of the prompting a lot of the world building in the book because I ha- I didn't have like a product review in there before. I didn't have um, a lot of, que- I hadn't answered a lot of the questions about modern computing or about technology in this alternate universe where magic exists. And so, um, John, an invaluable <laughs> voice in this book. Yeah. So, so when you say um, helping me shape the story from the start, so I guess, did you, you sent him the manuscript when it was in its early stages or I actually don't know the story behind this? Yeah, so I wrote a proposal. So it was about 50 pages of the book. Um, it was so different from, it was almost unrecognizable, basically. But the kind of kernel of the idea was there. Um, and then I had a, an outline. And the outline stayed relatively similar. But we had early conversations about what was working and what wasn't. And um, especially, like, things to kind of steer away from and things to steer toward. And so um, it was very much something that we um that we shaped or together or really i mean it was more like john asked a, a many many pages of questions <laughs> and i had to come up with answers for all of those questions um which is kind of my favorite way to develop stories um but yeah we had like whole months where i just didn't communicate with the outside world or him at all it's like just trust me eventually you'll get a manuscript <laughs> Is that how you've done your books generally is like in collaboration with an editor like that? Or did you switch to that method at a certain point in your career? Or No, this was the first time I had done that. So okay. um, for the most part, I write a whole manuscript and then send it out. But for this one, it felt like um, because it was a new category for me um, that it might be beneficial to uh, shape it a little more with someone. Yeah. Well, you also say in the acknowledgments... Um, uh, thanks to Nelson Fitch for many days of agonizing over world building with me. So yeah. uh, what sorts of agonizing did you do? Well, that's, I mean, that's my husband. Um, just to clarify for anyone. Um, he mostly was about the, the antagonist. So there just reached a certain point where some of the decisions I had made started to fall apart and we had to kind of work through, um, well, the book has like parallel universes in it. I don't think it's, too crazy a spoiler to say that. Um, it has parallel universes and then uh, trying to figure out what kind of, what theory of like multiverse I was going to use and 
you know, just like the barest level of science <laughs> that I can understand um, in order to make it work with this book. So it's fantasy, but it, it had this like uh, kind of science fiction undercurrent that I was having trouble uh, working out. And so my husband and I spent about three days talking, um, which, you know, he's not a writer. So <laughs> for him, this was like, why doesn't that idea work? And how are like, what have we decided now? And he was very patient. <laughs> Is he into fantasy and science fiction? Uh, yeah, he is definitely a reader of them, just not not a writer. Yeah. Well, so yeah, so we'll explain. So um, the story takes place in multiple universes, one being one that's that's our Earth, or, or very very similar to it, and then except yeah, I guess you know with the um the guy didn't, uh, that had this chosen one struggle in it. Um, yeah. But otherwise, it's pretty similar to ours. And then there's another one called Genetrix, where magic is much more of a um, you know, sort of much more visible and commonplace. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah, so talk a little bit more about Genetrix and what sorts of, um, you know, kind of things you had to work out in terms of the society where magic is commonplace. Yeah. So, uh, Genetrix, which is just one of two names that they call their universe. Obviously, the other name is Earth, um, for them is a, very closely related universe that diverged from ours in around the year 1969. Um, so instead of the space race, my theory of their universe is that they went underwater instead. So they explored like the Mariana Trench because the space race is really, um, you know, which is our, our kind of struggle with Russia to get to the moon first. Um, it wasn't really about getting to the moon. It was about the development of surveillance technology and like ballistic missiles. So I figured we could still do that. It could be motivated um, by the same things, but then drive us kind of like into the ocean instead. So that was the like basic theory of these two universes splitting. And in the process of, you know, exploring the Mariana Trench, they like f accidentally fire a missile into the deep into the earth and it sends this like natural phenomena, which we know is magic throughout the entire universe and it kills a bunch of people and makes everything go completely haywire. And this universe has developed in wake of that incident. So their whole, uh, like all of their architecture after 1969 is different. Their technology, the way they relate to computers, which obviously like exist, but in a much different form. Um, all of that stuff is different. Fashion is different. You know, everything is different. So it feels like um, a modern world in a sense, but not quite the one that we know. Yeah, and I really liked a lot of those world-building details. Like, it, uh, early on, one of the characters puts on a sweater and notices that the sleeves are very short. It's kind of like, why does the sweater have such short sleeves? And then we find out shortly thereafter that people in this world wear this kind of magical jewelry very often. And so the fashion, as you say, is, um, you know, Adapting, adjusted yeah. to accommodate that, yeah. It reminds me of like, you know, we have these, all, all of our gloves now have like those two fingertips that you can <laughs> use your touch screen with. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the, the theory behind it. How about the, the, and this magical jewelry, it's called siphons. Do you, do you remember how, how that idea developed? Well, it was, you know, it's just a question you kind of have to answer when you're dealing with any kind of magic is like, well, how do, how is this facilitated? Like, are they using wands, you know? And, um, the answer is no, but I wanted it to feel almost like a smartphone um, in terms of like their approach to it. But uh, it made more sense for it to be like literally attached because then you can do it all the time. Um, but the siphons basically amplify magical ability that exists sort of ambiently in everybody. Um, and there are different kinds for different levels of 
power and and different sophisticated the sophisticated workings and workings is like the name for instead of spells or something like a magical working um so that's kind of how they came about um and the magic system i was kind of focused on making it feel like it walked the line between science and science fiction and fantasy a little bit because you know it's sort of romantic uh it's based on sound and music sort of sound frequency really but of course with sound frequency you can have whistling and humming and singing and so that's kind of romantic but it's also something that you can measure um so that was a a nice like compromise for me because i usually don't write fantasy so <laughs> i usually go a little more science fiction is uh, is sounds and music is that something that you're interested in um Sort of. I mean, I I was in choir in high school, but that's, I mean, I'm not, like, good at it. <laughs> um, but my my husband does build speakers, <laughs> so I think I've become, I, like, know a lot more about it than I used to. Um, he builds them in our basement, and then he tests them all throughout the house and uh, measures them and everything like that. So I think maybe that uh, kind of influenced me a little bit. Huh. Does that involve oscilloscopes, that, that process? No, I don't think anyone uses those. I feel like I'm going to get letters about those, about how they don't actually do what I, what the internet told me they do. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I want to ask you one of the, um, sort of, um, interstitial pieces in the book is called Stories of the Multiverse by Rufus Edgerton. Uh, and it's mm -hmm. about people going to different kinds of parallel universes and suffering terrible fates. I was just curious what the origin of that piece was. Oh, I think that one was kind of like fiction inside of that universe because they don't have um, the ability to like travel between universes widely. Obviously, that does happen in the book, but it's not like something that people have experienced. Um, so really, that's just like a fictional piece about. I mean, it's obviously fictional, but it's even fictional <laughs> inside the the story, which is a hard thing, a hard distinction to make. Um, well, but how did how did you I, come? How did it come to you to to come up with that and include it in this in the story? Oh, well, hmm. I think I just wanted to, um, I'm trying to remember what that one is exactly. Do you, do you have a page number for that so I can uh, just stare uh, at it for a second? Oh, thank you. Alright. Here we go. Aha! Yeah, okay. So I think I realized that there needed to be, um, at that point, I'm trying to think of how to describe this without spoiling everything. But we have learned of someone who is trying to figure out how to form this connection between parallel universes. And so I wanted to find a way to describe what his early, like, experiences and the dangers of doing this might have been without having, like, journal entries from his perspective. So, um, this was just a way of explaining to people who have not considered the idea of what kinds of universes there could be out there. Um, about like how perilous this actually would be because when you have infinite variety you have infinitely weird and dangerous environments yeah because I, I that's what i was kind of wondering about is because i feel like yeah a lot of fantasy and science fiction there will just be some glowing portal or something and people are like oh, let's see what's on the other side of that and you're like well how do you even know there's air you know maybe yeah. there's like a hundred times as much gravity like have you checked you know <laughs> exactly <laughs> i think um the book dark matter by blake crouch kind of goes into this a little bit where in that book, there's a good explanation for why they keep ending up on in universes where like gravity works and people, you know, are still alive and stuff. But um, he does go into like the various apocalyptic environments that you might encounter if you try to travel between universes. Hmm. 
I haven't read um, Blake Crouch, but I noticed he uh, he borrowed this book along with um, Charlie Jane Anders and Charles Yu. I was yeah. just curious, are those people that you, have you interacted with them at all? Well, I hadn't interacted with them. Oh, I had, um, with Blake, Blake invited me to be a part of a short story collection called the Forward Collection, which was a bunch of um, authors writing science fiction stories. Um, and so I had, I knew him from that. But other than that, I had not interacted with people at all. Um, they were just very kind to give me these blurbs. <laughs> Do you, uh, do you interact much at all with um, other science fiction authors or like the science fiction community or anything like that? Um, yeah, I, I came from obviously writing in YA. So my connections as an author are very much young adult centered, but, um, I think it's pretty important when you're entering a new category or genre of book to read widely in that category. So obviously I'm a lifelong reader of adult sci-fi fantasy, but, um, before I wrote this book, I was very intentional about reading the more recent work that was happening in the industry and then following all of those people on Instagram <laughs> once I became like a fangirl of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So what do you, what's your take on Instagram and just social media for authors? Because you have, you know, we mentioned the character, um, Esther is a big, yeah. is big into Instagram. Well, I think, um, this book communicates my like deep. <laughs> deep confusion about social media. So I am very active on social media, especially now since we're in, you know, peak coronavirus right now. Um, I'm very active, but I also am worried about how active I am. So um, in this book, in the alternate universe, they don't have social media. And for me, that was kind of like a little bit of more wish fulfillment um, because I worry about my ability to focus on things and to experience things without feeling the need to share them and, um, just my willingness to be present with people physically, like in their space. It's obviously I can't do right now, but usually I can. Um, so I kind of wanted to explore what a world without it would be like and what maybe what different priorities would lead people to no longer believe that it's important or, yeah, important at all. They're kind of like, why would you, there's a great, for me, it was a great conversation in the book, um, where someone is trying to explain social media to someone in this universe. And he's like, well, why would I want to scroll through someone's like feed of, why would I want to watch them do regular everyday stuff? Like that sounds, why wouldn't I just do it myself? And it's his confusion is my confusion. <laughs> Yeah, I think one of the characters says, you know, why wouldn't you just talk to somebody face to face? And Esther says, well, because then you have to, like, put on clothes and, like, there's all these, like, <laughs> like social um, cues that you have to read and, you know, it can get very awkward. And I think a lot of authors or probably a lot of people can relate to that. I could certainly relate to that, that there's just something a lot easier about. Yes, you know. absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sort of of two minds about it. Like, on the one hand... I find it so much easier not to be face to face. And on the other hand, I recognize that being face to face is very important. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. But I mean, it, it, you mentioned the coronavirus. I mean, in this current sort of catastrophe we're in, I'm sure glad that there's social media and Skype and all these things. I mean, you know, it's uh, uh, really kind of uh, the only social contact uh, you're having right now or, or should be having. I know it's really been kind of, making me more grateful for something that I was slightly more resentful of before. I can't imagine how we would be functioning right now if we didn't have the internet. So uh, I'm a deep, 
deeply appreciative of it now, <laughs> but not maybe not when I was writing the book. There's a line in the book. So you're talking about Mrs. Summers, who's who's Andy's. Uh, I have their name on L. Albie. Albie's yeah. Albie's mom. Um, and uh, it, it said she was the kind of person who followed celebrity gossip religiously and believed what she read in chain emails that warned of new viruses and internet curses. So yeah. uh, maybe those chain emails, you know, we should have paid more attention to those chain emails all along. I know. I've, I've been discounting them for years. Probably I brought about my own due. <laughs> um. Let's see. So I wanted to. So you're from uh, Chicago, and the yes. book is dedicated to Chicago, the city that endures. Um, mm -hmm. Is there any particular significance to that? Um, you know, that opening yes. thing. So it's both funny and not funny. Um, the funny part is that I have now destroyed Chicago fictionally like four times, hmm. um, and yet still somehow every time it's it remains. So um, it was kind of a cheeky reference to that. But also, um, one of the reasons I set the book in Chicago is that in recent years, the most of what people know about Chicago has kind of shifted and become more about its violence and the problems in the city, which are very real and very important. But it's also a place that's um, worth saving, worth improving. And I think when we characterize it as like similar to a war zone, which I think um, some politician, it probably was Trump, um, kind of compared it to a couple of years ago, it makes the place feel like we should just like let it burn, basically. Um, and I find that to be really troubling. And I feel very protective of this city. And uh, so I set the book here and I live here and I dedicated it to Chicago also because it has proved to be a very fertile ground for me in terms of fictional <laughs> setting. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I really love it here. So I feel no reason to set a book anywhere else, really, unless I'm setting it in a different galaxy or something like that. Hmm. Well, so there's a line, uh, this is about Sloan. It says she believed that there was something special about this place, i.e. Chicago. She could feel the way the city had attracted her, even from childhood, beautiful and strange and glittering in the sun. Is that how you felt about Chicago, even from childhood? Yeah, I think so, because I didn't grow up in the city itself. I grew up in a suburb, and so... Um, every time you went to the city, you know, it was like a very exciting experience and usually it was on a school field trip and it was just this like glittering and beautiful place. I mean, it is like the downtown area is among the most beautiful cities I've ever seen. Um, not that I'm biased or anything. <laughs> have you lived any, have you ever lived in an, any other cities? Yeah. Um, when I was a child, we moved around a lot. Both my parents are, uh, my father is German and my mother is Polish. So, um, we were we lived in Germany for a time. Then we randomly lived in Hong Kong, and uh, well, I was born in New York, in upstate New York. So I've lived in a couple places, but I keep coming back here. So what do you think is uh, what makes Chicago better than New York? I'm, I, I grew up in New York, so <laughs> I'm, I'm curious. Uh, well, I find it to be less uh, packed. There's alleys here, so you can put your, put your trash in an alley, and there's back doors, and you can drive and park, and um, I find it to be generally more livable, I think. I haven't lived in New York, so not as an adult anyway, so I can't talk trash about it. It's obviously a very special place, and there's no place quite like it, but for me, Chicago is, a, is um, I don't know, it also, people in Chicago don't really have, like, the same pride about, well, they do, that's, that's a lie. 
Um, Chicagoans are really into Chicago, and I think I do <laughs> love that about them. Because it's like, this place can be pretty miserable about half the year. So it's a little funny to be that, like, forceful about it. But um, but it doesn't have, like, an attitude. I think, uh, like, especially, like, L.A. or, or New York, there's kind of a, a feeling about ha- of being someone who lives there. Um, whereas Chicago is just more like home. It's funny you mention alleyways because um, uh, one of my friends commented one time that in Spider-Man, there's always, you know, somebody walking down an alleyway and they're going to get mugged or something. And then Spider-Man rescues them. And he's like, there's no alleys in New York City. Like, that would never happen. It's like, I've lived here for 20 <laughs> years. I saw like one alley one time. You know, where? You know what? That's a really good point, And I haven't thought of that before. But now it's all I'm ever going to think about with Spider-Man. <laughs> Yeah, so that's maybe another advantage of Chicago gives more uh, gives superheroes more to do because there's more places, you know, more alleys to rescue people. Yeah, mm-hmm. very uh, scenic for movies. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, um, so you know, one of my favorite movies is Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and mm-hmm. it says in the book that Sloan and Cameron were named after the characters in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah, um, I don't even know. Honestly, it happened by accident. So I named the character Sloan because I liked. Um, it's kind of cool, slightly, like, not terribly feminine vibe. Um, that's really, like, the whole of it. And then I randomly, like, paired her. When I came time to name her brother, I just happened to name him Cameron. And then in revisions, I was like, oh, <laughs> that clearly comes from Ferris, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So some sometimes I find in writing that something has just worked its way deep into your brain, and it comes out without you meaning it to. And um, that's certainly one of those times. Are you are you are you a big fan of Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Oh yeah, love it. Um, and Cameron's the best part. Like the, I'm not gonna sing the when Cameron went to Egypt land, <laughs> let my Cameron go. But <laughs> yeah, I uh, think of that all the time. <laughs> yeah, well, and you know, um, when I was growing up, whenever I was sick home from school, I'd watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off because it's about a, a kid who's pretending to be sick from school and then goes on this crazy adventure in Chicago. Um, yes, funnily enough. Yeah. Um, have you, um, have you done all that stuff that he does in the movie? Like the museum and the baseball stadium? I'm trying to remember. Uh, have you ever roller skated through an art, art museum? No, I have not roller skated through an art museum. I think I've been to the locations that are in that movie. I mean, the ones that are, that you can go to. I don't know where, I think they're in like an office building or something. Anyway, um, but no, I haven't done all of those activities, sadly. (laughs) Um, in Chicago, what kind of, um, science fiction scene is there in Chicago? Are there conventions and bookstores and stuff like that? Um, I'm sure there are. I haven't gotten, I mean, I barely leave my house before this quarantine. Um, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm not as connected as, <laughs> as I might like, but I know we have one hell of a Comic-Con. So with C2E2, so there's at least that. Yeah. What we want to uh, explain about that if people haven't heard of it. Oh, C2E2 is just uh, the Chicago Comic-Con, but um, I don't know. I think it's it it has, like, sort of the best things about Comic-Con at it, which is, like, it's not super, super crowded. Um, like, San Diego has kind of become overwhelming um, and very friendly and a lot of costumes, which is my favorite part about going, so. Yeah, even New York Comic-Con is too big for me, so maybe I should check mm-hmm. out Chicago. Do you have any... Um... Yeah sort of uh, uh, notable experiences that have happened to you at Chicago Comic-Con? No, I mean, I've only gone once. Um, It usually fell into, like, a bad time frame for my book releases, so I wasn't able to go. 
and it's not really a focus for like a YA book exactly. Um, but what what happened last time? I don't know. I think I honestly just I like got to wander around a little more because it wasn't so crowded. So I went to like Artist Alley and um, saw all the the great art there, and then kind of just like observed people. So it was just a very friendly and non not overwhelming comic con experience overall and it does have a good like a really good book like track in a way that not every every comic con i've been to does do do people recognize you they're like hey you're veronica roth walking around comic con you know what not usually yeah that's the great part about being an author is uh people <laughs> don't really know what you look like and they don't really care so it's great <laughs> yeah that's pretty similar to being a podcaster actually especially the not caring mm-hmm. part yeah uh, <laughs> But so, um, but you do, you must do a lot of, um, events where people have come to see you, right? Like, re- uh, bookstore events and stuff like that? Yeah. So, like, if they're at the bookstore for an event that I am doing, they will <laughs> recognize me. <laughs> yes. So, what, what kind also, of things? Also, I'm very tall. So, what kind of things do people say to you, like, at those sorts of events? Oh, well, you know, in my previous life, um, a lot of my readers are, you know, from like 12 to 16. So, they will say r- literally whatever is on their mind, um, sometimes kind and sometimes not so kind, <laughs> which is one of the things I really love about teenagers. Um, so they'll like critique your book to your face, which is always memorable. And they almost like don't seem to understand that it's happening. But um, I also got asked by this very sweet, I think she's about 11 years old girl, uh, who my favorite member of One Direction was. And I didn't know who One Direction was at the time, so I think I ruined her life um, by telling her what's One Direction, is that a band? And she was, like, heartbroken. So um, <laughs> there's, there's some of that. Um, I think people just want to feel like they can relate to you, um, which is nice. And But mostly it's just like, uh, you know, what was it like to meet Theo James and stuff like that. So, <laughs> Are there any, um, like, brutally honest things that fans have said to you that you could that you would want to repeat. I can share. Oh, well, mostly when people are brutally honest with me, it's to tell me that they really hated the third book in the Divergent series, especially how it ended. And they probably, I think a lot of people have described throwing it at a wall, um, which I personally take as a compliment, but uh, yeah. So it's mostly, it's mostly like, I think the series got really bad at the end <laughs> is what people tell me. And how do you, yeah. how do you respond to that? I don't know. It it doesn't, it really like doesn't hurt my feelings. Um, especially when they're younger. Cause it's just like, well, um, you're allowed to have reactions to books. You know, it's totally fine. It doesn't hurt me. Um, I feel a certain way about it. It doesn't really change the way I feel about it to hear how other people react to it. And then, um, you know, I just, especially because of, I don't want to like give away the ending of that series, but it doesn't end that happy. So obviously it was going to be polarizing. So it, you know, it's all good. Um, but for the most part, like, it feels like we're coming together to talk about something that was meaningful to to, to me and to them. So it, it doesn't really matter if they didn't love every part of it. Um, that they read it and engaged with it is, is what's important to me. Yeah, I guess speaking of sort of people being obnoxious, there's a the, the book pretty much opens <laughs> with this um, uh, sort of, you know, fictional um, uh, article, like a magazine article. Uh, yeah, I I I'm, I wrote it down, but I'm not. Let's see. Uh, but something about Slo- Sloan Andrews doesn't really care. Parentheses no, really by Rick Lane. Could you talk mm-hmm. about the origin of that 
that little piece? Yeah. There? Um, so basically it is a celebrity profile of Sloan, and that is the first introduction we get to her. So we don't see her through her perspective, we see her through this guy's perspective, and he is misogynistic. So he's pretty much sexualizing and objectifying her through this entire interview, and also poking her, um, in very particular ways about, like, very sensitive topics. So, um, it's pretty brutal, actually, but, uh, I read a lot of celebrity profiles to prepare for that. Um, I'm trying to think of the most significant ones were uh there was a one of Margot Robbie and Esquire, there was one of Scarlett Johansson and I think Rolling Stone, and then there's a Britney Spears piece, I think also in Rolling Stone, um, where it's just like clear like something weird is happening in the mind of the interviewer and it says a lot more about them than it does about the subject. And the point of that was really to establish like what Sloan is how she appears to the world. Um, that she's become kind of like something to consume as opposed to a person. Um, but also that she is, has this reputation of being pretty sour with, uh, journalists and relating to her fame in a really kind of negative way. Um, and then, so you see her and she's this figure, this kind of like cold bitch figure that I think we're familiar with if anyone pays attention to like, I don't know, celebrity culture at all. Um, but then the immediately following that, the first chapter with her is very extremely vulnerable um, and sort of reveals her frailty. So it's very much the dichotomy of Sloan. Like, she's a cool girl, kind of, but she's not, actually. She's someone who has a lot of problems um, and a lot of issues. So And with, a, I think, a kind of soft emotional core. So establishing that dichotomy right away was kind of the, the point of that article. Do you think that any celebrity journalist might read your book and, and sort of recognize themselves and be like, oh, I've been awful? Or is that just sort of, <laughs> is that what celebrity journal is that what the readers want? Right. So that's always going to be a feature of celebrity journalism, do you think? I think those even the pieces I listed, I don't think they would happen anymore. So it's not that people aren't misogynistic anymore, but it's that we're all sort of culturally way more aware of that kind of thing and the cost of it. Um, and especially for a publication, I think they're a little more careful about what they'll publish now. Of course, I'll see something terrible this <laughs> week and then I'll eat my words. But I do think that the situation has changed and continues to change, which is a really good thing. Right. Because I thought, I mean, another thing I thought was interesting about this is in the fictional world of the book is that um, you have sort of, you know, again, it, it looks at like if we actually had chosen ones, how would people relate to them and how would people have different perspectives on them. And so you actually have um, acolytes of the dark one who are kind of like, you know, su his supporters, even though he, they never met him or anything, but they just, you mm -hmm. know, uh, go online and defend him or, you know, like, you know, they, 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 like, no matter how, like, you can have someone called the dark one and you'll still have people picking that side, you know? Oh, yeah. I just think that's inevitable, right? Like for every um like murderous creep that exists, there's a bunch of people who think he's cool. So like we find that with serial killers, we find it with everyone. So um I just figured it was an inevitability of having a figure like the dark one. Yeah, and I like that that they say he was misrepresented by the media. I just thought that was Yeah, and they funny. also there's a little bit of like Thanos did nothing wrong, that subreddit. Um <laughs> that that spirit in there is like he's just trying to cull the weak and save the strong. What's wrong with that? Like, oh, my God, we don't have time to get into what's wrong with that. <laughs> oh, but I'm not even I, I haven't seen that, I guess. There, there's a subreddit called Thanos did nothing wrong. 
Yes. Um, it's most, I mean, it's a joke to be clear. Yeah. Okay. Actually, an excellent subreddit. But, um, yeah, there's people who want to tell you that Thanos is, uh, doing something right. (laughs) I mean, some of his logic makes a little bit of sense, but then it starts to get wild pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent, but yeah, if you have a, (laughs) if you can like snap your fingers and make anything happen, it seems like there's all sorts of other alternatives you could use. Yeah. Yeah. You could, like, infinitely expand the space and resources of your universe. Yeah, yeah. We don't need to get into this, sorry. <laughs> that would make, make for a less uh, less dramatic battle scene at the end of the, at the, Certainly, end of the movie. Certainly, yeah. yeah. Um, I also like, there, there's something called, this is just sort of a throwaway line, but there's something called the all-chosen movement, and where, mm-hmm. um, do you want to just talk about that? Because I thought that was another kind of interesting sociological kind of thing. Yeah, so, um, basically, the one, that the, the the chosen one that they have identified, the, like the group of chosen ones, as the actual chosen one is Sloane's boyfriend Matt, who is um, a black man. So, um, the idea between this like all chosen movement that has arisen is to emphasize the importance of all the other chosen ones. So it's a little bit like, um, you know how it's sort of like how modern racism is very much like I don't see color. Um, so it's a little milder than like your classic racism, I guess. Um, and, but it's still insidious. So, uh, the idea is that, um, all the chosen ones should be equally represented, even though Matt served, like was the leader of this group and served a very important role. And all of the people around him insist that he deserves this treatment. Um, this is kind of a way to be racist without seeming racist, uh, to some people. So that's the idea behind that. Did all these sorts of world building details occur to you pretty early on, or did you write, write like a draft or two, and then you're like, "Oh, there should be an all chosen movement," and you just stick that in there? Yeah, well, uh, no, that one developed a little later. Um, I would say that in my rough drafts, I usually take big, broad, kind of like big swings at stuff and um, struggle to make decisions about details. So I will end up almost like steering away from all choices in a rough draft, and it's very odd. Um, but I am not someone who likes rough drafts, so I usually get it over with and then try and narrow my focus in subsequent revisions. So that's very much what happened here. Um, there were a lot of unanswered questions about how the world worked and even currency, stuff like that, you know, um, I just kind of avoided. And um, I think, yeah, especially with Matt, it was important that I get um, some outside readers because I have blind spots about what his experience would be like in the world. Um, and so some of his development came at a slightly later uh, version of the book, but because um, these things take time to kind of figure them out. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So uh, there's, oh, um, you mentioned uh, Donald Trump, actually. I was just kind of curious if there is any significance to the fact that the Dark One's hideout was located in Trump Tower. I mean, any it's exactly subtle, like... subtle, <laughs> uh, understated political <laughs> subtext there? Oh, yeah, it's real subtle. <laughs> um, actually, you know, this is like so, so much less political and so much more personal, which is that I have just always hated Trump Tower. Um, it didn't always like say Trump on it, but um, when they built it in Chicago, I have always, I've, I resented it then because it's the like third it's one of the taller buildings in the city and it's right in the middle of the skyline so i just find the arrogance of that building to be very 
troubling. And then when he was elected president, I was like, well, great. <laughs> now, not only is his building in the middle of town, but they've also affixed, like, two-story high letters to it. And I wish, like, this building did not exist. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, it's my personal gripe as well as, like, a really subtle <laughs> commentary. So I got an uh, email the other day that there's a, an audiobook of this coming out. You want to tell us about that? Yeah. So um, because the book is told through partially through narrative um, and partially through documents, there's going to be a lot of voices on the audiobook, which is awesome because I love that kind of audiobook. feels like a stage play. Um, and then the voice of Sloan is Dakota Fanning, which is pretty cool. Um, and I got to read one of the documents, which was also pretty cool. So uh, can you say which document you read? Yeah, I'm wondering if I'm keeping it secret to give people, like, can they guess about it? Um, but I, I read a newspaper article, so I'll say that. Okay, what was the process like of recording it? Well, I just went to the studios when I was out in New York. So the Audible studios are in Newark. And, you know, they put me in a little room uh, and just had me read it. And I had to do my best with voice acting, which is not something that comes naturally to me. So it took a couple... <laughs> Took a couple takes. <laughs> yeah. You don't have any sort of um, performance backgrounds at all? No, definitely not. <laughs> um, so then, yeah, it also, it says on this, this ARC I got that there, you're, you were supposed to go on a, like a 15 city book tour or something. Obviously, that's, uh, I, I think, yep. uh, not happening. That is canceled. Um, yeah. can you, what are you doing? What are you doing instead? Are you getting, um, opportunities to do like phone interviews and stuff like that? Yeah, so I've done, um, I now have this mic set up so I can record phone interviews in a sophisticated fashion in a way that I couldn't before. But I'm also doing a series of virtual events. So I'll be in conversation with on, uh, on the week of, of publication, which is, you know, the week of April 6th. Um, I'll be with Lee Bardugo and then Charlie Jane Anders, Shauna McGuire, Rita Woods, and, um, C.A. Higgins. So not in that order. But each night we'll be, t I'll be talking to each of them about a different theme or topic. So, you know, with Lee Wardugo, I'm talking about book to film adaptations and with Shauna McGuire, it's like crafting a series and it should be really fun and interesting. And it's just a way to try to support independent bookstores. Um, because, you know, going to book tour at them kind of encourages people to go into the bookstore and to buy books and not just my book, but any book. Um, and unfortunately, like I can't do that now. And also those bookstores are kind of in danger because they're, um, you know, they don't, it's not a huge money making proposition starting a bookstore. You do it because you love books and you love like the reading community. And so I think it's important to support them in this time. And a lot of them are doing delivery and um, even free delivery. Even if you don't have one near you, it's good to order from them. So how would people, those, um, those online events that you're doing, how would they find them? Well, they could just go to my Twitch channel, which is a thing that I have now. So I'm at, um, twitch.tv slash vrothbooks. So the events will be streamed there. You don't need an account to watch them. Um, although you do t if you want to ask questions or make comments. So you didn't have a, a, a Yeti mic until, until just recently? Uh, no. I mean, I did actually. I did get it a little bit before coronavirus. I just didn't know how useful it would become. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you did because uh, I always appreciate when there's good good audio quality on this podcast. Yeah. I imagine that doing um, interviews with people who are just like on an iPhone is not, <laughs> is not the best. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, all right, cool. So, and uh, is there a, a sequel? I, I think I saw there's a sequel in the works. Uh, that is the plan, yeah. And that will be the next thing that I work on. Do you have, but you haven't started it yet? No, no. I mean, I do have a pretty detailed outline, but that's about it. So that's where it starts. All right, cool. Yeah, like, uh, best of luck with that. Really looking forward to it. Do you have you. any other uh, final thoughts or anything else you wanted to mention? No, this was uh, extremely thorough and thoughtful. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, so we've been speaking with Veronica Roth about her new novel, Chosen Ones. So, Veronica, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Veronica Roth for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarrkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.